Welcome to the No-Fly Zone, a national security podcast on current affairs by Uba Shabander and Yusuf Aram. From the battlefields of Syria to inside the Kremlin walls, bringing you insight and analysis from around the world with an edge. Let's jump right in it, buddy. Let's jump right into it. So Russia. what's on the agenda? Yeah, Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. So this is interesting because the Russian International Affairs Council is basically Russia's version of the Council for Foreign Affairs, right? So it's close to the Kremlin. You've got people uh, like the former Russian envoy to Syria who's been writing a number of unprecedented pieces on Bashar al-Assad, basically uh, reflecting the Kremlin's concern, if not opposition and worry that Bashar al-Assad is just becoming too much trouble for them. But you also got the Bloomberg article from last week saying that there is a growing divide between Russia and Assad as well. So uh, when we look at the current conjecture of Syria and what's going on there, how much does Russia really need Assad right now? I mean, Russia has gotten pretty much what it wanted. It has its bases. Uh, it it's got has, a naval base, it's air got its base. naval base, it's got its air base, it's got Tartus, it's got Latakia. Uh, basically, uh, it has the regime in power. Uh, why not go for a regime minus Assad and extend the uh, expiration date of uh, the leadership over there that is Russia friendly, but also create a platform where you have a structure in power that can actually deal with the Syrian opposition now move forward because when we look at what's going on right now, we're seeing a bottleneck form around Assad, and uh, it's just this reconciliation process. This clogged. It's, it's it's very clogged. It's sort of you, you know, you break it, you buy it, right? But now Moscow has to foot this massive bill. Massive bill, and oil prices are record lows. Kremlin's feeling the pinch in the pockets right now, and. Uh, the best way to re-up those pockets is rebuilding. And the EU, the U.S., nobody's giving money with Assad at well, the helm. Certainly. So, you know, Trump signed a series of new sanctions uh, on Syria and on any bank that would do any business with the Assad regime. Uh, so Trump, President Trump, uh, just as a recap for our listeners, back in uh, late last year, signed the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act, which essentially puts massive, massive pressure on the Assad regime and on the banking networks in Lebanon controlled by Hezbollah and the Iranians that the Assad regime desperately depended on for foreign capital. You know, I've criticized U.S. sanctions in the past before. Uh, They've placed some very light sanctions on Turkey during the uh, Brunson, the uh, U.S. pastor Mm -hmm. who was Uh, on trial in Turkey. They placed some light sanctions on Turkey, uh, placed sanctions on Iran, placed sanctions on Venezuela. And I've criticized sanctions for being basically a useless tool. But I think for the first time, the U.S. actually has it right with Syria. And Mm -hmm. these sanctions look like they're actually uh, getting some results because uh, the Syrian economy is terrible shape. The regime is absolutely bankrupt. And uh, the coronavirus right now is just adding... uh, insult to injury, yeah. uh, and Assad's in a very tough position right now. Is there a divide? Is Assad on the way out? I think this is something that needs to be examined much more closely. And right across the river in Deir Ezzor, which is an eastern province in Syria, you've got the Russians and the Iranians. But now, here's my question to you, Yusuf. Are 
the economic and geopolitical interests of Russia when it comes to Syria and its oil and natural gas fields mutually exclusive with those of Iran's? I think uh, there is a growing divide between the interests, a diverging uh, trend between the interests of Iran and Russia. And we're mm. seeing that more and more uh, when we look at the deals that were struck in Idlib. Iran was kind of on the outside looking in, mm. uh, regardless of uh, the Turkish president and his Russian counterpart, both saying that uh, they had consulted with Iran. Uh, Rouhani was not president. I think that speaks volumes uh, for both of those deals being struck in Idlib. And we're seeing uh, both the Turks and the Russians communicating a lot more often with what's going on. Uh, they seem, even though they're on opposite sides, they seem a little more eye to eye on the future of Syria and what they want. They do want this territorial integrity of the country as a whole. I think they're both uh, a little uncomfortable with the presence of Shiite militia all over the place now. Thousands of them. Yeah, regardless of Turkey working with Iran, this is something I've always said. Yes, Turkey's, uh, Turkey and Iran are partners. They do work together in uh, many uh, many fields. Uh, energy, uh, they're partnered up in. They're partnered up in Syria, even though they're on opposite sides. Uh, Turkey backs uh, Iran when it comes to the JCPOA and whatnot. But when we're looking at the presence of Shiite militia, this is something that makes Turkey very uncomfortable. It makes Turkey's proxies and partners in the region also very uncomfortable. So uh, I can see that the Russians are also uncomfortable with the Iranian presence on the ground being so dominant. Uh, it's so ideological as well. Yeah, it's something that uh, makes them uncomfortable. And mm. Russia spent a lot of money in Syria. So they're looking to reimburse right now. They're looking for a return on investment. And that's something that day by day seems more unlikely with Assad at the helm. Now, the Iranians, well, yes, they are interested in money. They're more interested, in, I think, in that land bridge going all the way to Lebanon. They're more interested in having their contractors get so those contracts. So it's a land bridge from Iran to, to Iraq, Iraq, through Syria. To Syria, to Lebanon. And uh, they're interested in creating that uh, Shiite crescent, let's call mm -hmm. it, uh, to keep a pressure on Israel. Network. Yes, to mm -hmm. keep pressure on Israel, mm -hmm. uh, their uh, mortal rival, let's call it. So uh, when we're looking, Iran is in this more ideologically when the Russians treat Syria more as a client state. So they kind of have uh, different interests. They have different goals in the country. And to me, it looks like Russia can achieve more of its goals now without Assad in the picture when the Iranians are a little more invested in the individual itself. Mm -hmm. uh, they still have a big presence on the ground. And yes, money is important to the Iranians as well, but that land bridge is critical to connecting all these Shiite networks in the area. Strategically critical for them as part of Iran's objective to maintain hegemony in the region and to expand their militant network. Now, we got we have to mention how, you know, the Israeli Air Force has been striking Iranian positions in Syria on an on a scale that hasn't been seen in, in a very long time. You you were seeing the Iranian Revolutionary Guards flying in precision guided missile components um, into eastern Syria, the Israeli Air Force taking them out uh, left and right. Just on the 20th, we saw a massive Israeli airstrike that took out at least seven underground bunkers in the T-4 airbase in eastern Syria. We're seeing the U.S. Uh, 
target Iranian militia throughout the region, mm-hmm. not just Syria, also Iraq. We've even seen the Turks uh, target some Iranian-backed militia in Idlib as well. So uh, one of the major problems of Iran is this unofficial network of militia uh, is very easily targeted by these state actors. And uh, that kind of limits their capacity to be an aggressor because in the end, they have no answer for this air power. Mm. Uh, they are not they are not a neighbor. There is Iraq and Iraq is in between Syria and Iran, so they can't move their defenses in any which way to protect these ground units. They're very, very vulnerable to any type of airstrikes, mm-hmm. whether it be Turkish drones, whether it be uh, U.S. or Israeli F-35s mm-hmm. or whatnot, whatever mm-hmm. the U.S. is using to strike uh, in their airstrikes. But they're obviously very, very vulnerable uh, to these airstrikes. So uh, when we look at the pecking order, we kind of see them below Russia and Turkey in this Syrian pecking order right now, where Russia seems to be the main shot caller with the regime. Turkey seems to be the number one guy when it comes to the opposition in. And then there's Iran. Then there's Iran. It's really interesting, by the way, the Russians have their advanced anti-aircraft defense systems and their air bases in northwest Syria. And they just, uh, interestingly enough, never seem to be on when the Israelis launch these airstrikes. So perhaps there is a mutual understanding between uh, Tel Aviv and Moscow. You mentioned the Russian media. Now, what's interesting here is that after that initial article in the Russian International Affairs Council that essentially uh, highlighted, I don't want to say accused because that's the reality, major corruption in the Assad regime, right? So Russian soldiers and and mercenaries and Wagner troops were dying for the Assad regime, propping him up back in 2015. The Assad regime was by all accounts on the verge of collapse, but then the Russians intervened alongside the Iranians, propped them back up. Now, in, in return, Assad regime has been just as corrupt as ever, right? So uh, massive corruption, mass, you know, massive discontent amongst the Syrian populace that uh, remains in the areas controlled by the Assad regime. And the Russians are realizing, oh, well, we broke it, but now we buy it. Now we own this situation, right? Because now the Assad regime is completely dependent upon the Russians and the Iranians, obviously, to an extent. And Russia's spent so much time and effort and money and now it's in Russian media. That's what's been so interesting to see this in the past few weeks for the Russian media, particularly media uh, outlets close to the Kremlin, close to Vladimir Putin and his advisors, outwardly, outwardly criticize uh, Assad and throw him under the bus, saying your regime is corrupt, you're not changing anything. This is just not a sustainable situation. So the big, for me, the million-dollar question is, is that does that really signal a paradigm shift with the Russians? Now, the Russians since 2014 have been saying, well, we're not supporting us at the person. We're supporting, you know, the, the, the regime. But now we're seeing outward critical in, uh, attacks against the person of Bashar Assad as a person, as a leader of what remains of the regime. And that's been really significant. I, I think Russia has gotten what it wanted from Syria, as I said before. Now it needs to consolidate and legitimize its gains to keep them long-term. And the best way to do that is a political solution process with a Russian-friendly actor who's going to allow Russia to consolidate those gains in the future Syria. And the best way forward is to get rid of Assad, find someone that the opposition in Turkey can 
feel comfortable dealing with, uh, someone who, a figure who can unify and recon reconcile because, uh, I mean, Turkey has 3.5 million refugees and uh, nobody's returning with Assad there. Right, absolutely. And until you have repatriation, there won't be normalization. And until you have normalization, we can't have a real political solution process. So it's... Uh, That's such an important point. And what a lot of our listeners out there don't realize is that even with a tentative ceasefire holding right now, based on a, a, a trilateral agreement between Turkey, Russia, and the United States, even with that ceasefire holding, there's a number of reports we've seen where civilians that have returned back to their homes, their villages, in areas that are now occupied by the Assad regime, uh, the males are immediately detained or forcibly conscripted, just or disappearing, or disappearing, even those that have signed reconciliation agreements. So the Russians set up a reconciliation center, but surprise, surprise, the Assad regime has not been abiding by those terms. So no trust whatsoever, even amongst those civilians that are returning to their villages and areas have been recaptured or reoccupied by the Assad regime. So now, what, what are the options that are left for the people? The only option is getting rid of Assad and finding yeah. a figure that reconciliation and normalization can be built around. And uh, that's a short list. It's a short list that the regime supporters, also the opposition, need to agree on and that Putin and Erdogan need to agree on as well. It's a new subplot emerging, a civil war brewing within the Assad family itself, that exactly. inner circle, that what, click. So what's going on with the cousin right now? I know you're following that closely. It is wild. So it's like a saga. if you've watched Game of Thrones, this is Game of Thrones meets a thousand and one nights. Essentially, the very rich, powerful cousin of Assad, Rami Makhlouf, who's got a massive business empire throughout Syria, Lebanon, Russia, and the Arabian Gulf region. Uh, this guy, Rami Makhlouf, grew up with Assad. His business empire essentially uh, bankrolled the regime and funded his militias. Well, now they're having a good old-fashioned flame war on social media. So Rami Makhlouf essentially went uh, online. He published two Facebook videos complaining that the Assad regime was confiscating some of his assets. Part of that reason is that the Russians have come back to the Assad and told him, hey, you owe us hundreds of millions of dollars in, in back pay. And Bashar al-Assad said, oh, well, I'll just take that from my cousin. I'll tax my cousin and I'll uh, take over some of his enterprises. Well, Rami Makhlouf did not like that and was completely unprecedented. He published these two uh, Facebook videos. The first one was kind of meek, you know, tried to make himself out as a as a as the victim, the second one was very implicitly threatening Bashar al-Assad. Now, within the Alawite community, which is about maybe 15%, 1-5, of the, the Syrian population. But about 80% of the power. Like 100% of the power, right? They, they All the major military positions, all the major government, government positions, they've got all the major government contracts. Now... There may be an internal fight brewing within that community because of this divide between the cousin and Assad. And now we've seen some new reports from the ground that the Assad security forces are arresting some of the senior associates to Rami Makhlouf. Rami Makhlouf is supposedly holed out in his villa right outside Damascus. And he's got his own militia members. They've got their own guns. 
So they easily, it could now be a case of Alawite versus Alawite. Assad versus Assad. Assad versus Assad. You hate to see it, but you Actually, kind of no. don't. <laughs> Actually, I don't hate to see it. <laughs> so anyway, I want to talk about two more things before we close out today's show. One, what's going to happen with HTS and Idlib? Now, we are slowly seeing the ceasefire hold. We've seen public opinion in Idlib completely shift against the HTS right now. And uh, there was a kind of a showdown between Turkish police and presumed HTS mm-hmm. members of uh, the regime. And Russia's uncomfortable with their presence there. Turkey's uncomfortable with their presence there. And the HTS has kind of become a thorn in everybody's side in Idlib. So what's going to happen to them? Is Turkey going to take them out? Is Assad and Russia going to take them out? Are Iran-backed militia going to take them out? Is this going to be a consortium just swooping down on HTS? Or is HTS just going to do the smart thing and dissolve itself and just try to uh, blend in with more moderate groups? So, I mean, something's got to give that. And the other topic I want to talk about is going to be the SDF and their future in uh, Syria. But let's get to that after the HTS. I want to hear what you think about the HTS. Syria is such an alphabet soup of acronyms. So just to explain, to dial it back a little bit. So HTS, HTS is a militant group in north, mostly in northwest Syria in the last rebel-held province in Idlib. HTS stands for, it's the Arabic acronym, Hayat al-Tahrir al-Sham. It's probably the most powerful Syrian rebel militant group uh, to date. They used to be called Jabhat al-Nusra. They used to be affiliated with al-Qaeda in Syria. Then there was another split between them. And now, essentially, HTS is trying to uh, establish itself as a more centrist force. But just a couple of days ago, as Yusuf said, there, you know, the, as HTS was trying to establish a trade route with the Assad regime's a lot of money, the civilians in Idlib province, the last held uh, rebel province outside of the control of the Assad regime in northwest Syria, they held a protest saying, hey, we do not want you to open trade route with the, with the Assad regime. And then HTS fired on people, killed some civilians. Uh, Turkish-backed military police came in. There was a tense standoff. So now the question is, what will HTS do next? We've seen some reports on the ground that they're trying to mediate, they want to basically uh, redesign their image, you know, to the world that hey, we're not really, you know, Islamists, we're not, you know, terrorists, that we were, pra- you know, we're practical, but no one really knows what's going to happen there, you know. So no like, one, no one does know what's going to happen yeah. now. Their leader Jolani is trying to take steps to moderate, but there's a big hardline core in that group that Indeed. Uh, doesn't want to see that type of moderation. And uh, there's actually a lot of infighting going on inside that group. And uh, also another group there, Haras al-Din, a much more hardline group Those guys as are well. straight out al-Qaeda. Yeah, those guys straight are straight out al-Qaeda. Uh, another group also a little bad blood between those groups as well. They've got so many fighters. What's so interesting is that as a, as a militant group, they were able to essentially establish themselves basically what every guerrilla group does, which is they need a source of income, right? So they use it by extortion, by taxation, and they were able to establish a level of uh, domestic security, right? So when you go into Idlib, I mean, HCS basically runs the place, right? And this is a map just to give the people, you know, back home an, an idea. 
Idlib province, we're talking about millions, millions of civilians, at least around, what, five million yeah, civilians. At least three. Three in the three city. To five, let's say. Three. Five in the metropolitan area, maybe. And we're not, and we're, and you know. By the way, Idlib was, a city, Idlib was a city of only five, six hundred thousand before the war. It was basically a small, it was a small town. But you've had so many families that were pushed out of, out of their homes by the Assad regime, by the Russian Air Force, by the Iranian militias from all over Syria. It if, became a dumping ground for rebels, basically, throughout the conflict. And, well, and civilians. You, yeah, what yeah. you have in Idlib right now is this super concentrated opposition. You have mild opposition. You have moderate opposition. You have hardcore opposition. You have secular groups. You have hardliners. You have Al-Qaeda offshoots operating in there. You have well, moderate uh, rebel groups operating. You, you, it's a smorgasbord of anti-Assad, basically. And, you know, one of the things that when you when we went into Idlib, the first thing that you realize is just the, you know, you mentally you're prepared. You know, there's going to be destruction. You know, you're going to see villages have been wiped out. But until you see it, I mean, one of the things Yusuf that impacted me the most was we went up to a home and the facade of the building was wiped out. But the inside, you could see right into the inside. Uh, people's beds were still there. There were hangers still in the closets. People's uh, paintings were still there. Uh, some of the food was still there as well in some of these areas um, in, in Idlib and the West Aleppo countryside. So it's very clear, you know, that the Assad regime and the Russian Air Force was just bombing everything in its way, everything in its way. In many ways, the people in Idlib were the ones sort of stuck in the middle between a rock and a hard place. And before, in order for any political solution to be able to establish some sort of normalization, you need to be able to provide them the security that. If they were to come back to their homes, to leave the refugee camps, or uh, that there would be a future for them and for their children. And right now, they are definitely not convinced, and I don't blame them, given and, the history. And I think what you just said, we can rewind it back to the beginning of our show. Is Russia ready to let go of Assad? Because I don't think what you just said is possible with Assad. Nobody's returning home. I think right now, HCS has to make a decision. Either they rebrand and they accept some level of moderation and they listen to the will of the, of the people, or they face some serious consequences. Now you have Turkish military has a significant force in Idlib. That wasn't the case a few months ago. No, it wasn't the case. They do have a significant force. And, and when we look at the uh, Sochi deal, the deal between uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, mm -hmm. Uh, that brought the ceasefire, the original ceasefire in Idlib, part of Turkey's responsibility was dismantling the HTS. But we have to realize that the HTS, about twelve to 15,000 fighters, like you said, very seasoned fighters, entrenched in an area of 3 million, 4 million population. That's not an easy task. Because for the Assad regime, what was the what was the, the motto that their militias used? Assad or we burn the country? Well, they have. They've burned... 90% of the country just for one man, right? That they would, so they would, these militias would go in and they would literally spray paint on the walls of the towns and villages they would capture, Assad or we burn the country. A very nihilistic vision of a cult of personality, right? So the Turkish military came in, they provided for the first time major military uh, damage to the Assad regime on the battlefield. Major military damage. I mean, that Three drone war. campaign, that, that drone campaign was incredible. Uh, it was historic. Uh, Turkish drones just basically waltzed in, 
decimated regime targets, uh, very important electronic warfare equipment, also the uh, Koral, uh, supporting those drones, jamming those radars as they were, uh, those Turkish drones were coming in, and incredibly surgical strikes by uh, Turkish drones. Uh, we, we didn't even hear anything of any civilian casualties, basically, which is unheard of. Uh, massive regime hits, taking out also Russian panzers, uh, taking out many where, uh, weapons warehouses in that area, uh, hitting uh, Iran-backed militia, uh, hitting some Hezbollah targets, Hezbollah some fighters major as well. Hezbollah fighters. Target, some major yeah. fighters uh, were taking out, some commanders were taking out as well. So uh, it was a very interesting campaign uh, against uh, the regime there, defending the Syrian opposition, and probably something that stopped a massive humanitarian disaster. If Turkey had stand, stood down, while the regime was advancing, we'd probably have another 500,000 to a million refugees right now. And still complicating matters for any hopes to end the nine-year-old conflict is the total sense of impunity that Bashar al-Assad is afforded by the presence of Russian forces and mercenaries on the ground in Syria. We, of course, we can't forget there are still hundreds of thousands of Syrians missing, many of them trapped in the Assad regime's dungeons, Thousands who have been executed, thousands have been gassed to death by the Assad regime's sarin gas bomb attacks that the Kremlin still refuses to acknowledge. So that sense of impunity offered to the regime by Russia and, of course, by Iran and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards that still prop up this horrendous regime. So still a great deal of unknowns, regardless of the geopolitical implications and the involvements of all these countries the Syrian people are still facing a very bleak future. Well, that's all what we have for today. You've been listening to the No-Fly Zone with Uvi Shibander and Yusuf Aaron.